take huh? that as a damnation on the manager at all? No, I just, you know, it's Tommy's entitled to his opinion. And, uh, you know, what works for one player may not work for another. It's, it's fine. We have, I've got a lot of, you know, I see the work these guys put in every day, so it doesn't really. So you don't agree with it, or do you agree with it? I, I don't even comment on it. It's just not, we got other things we need to, to be uh, on top of getting the team ready to play and finish the year. So, you know, Tommy's had a good year, and we wish him well. We're back, and joining me, you guys know him from The Athletic. Will Salmon uh, does great work over there at The Athletic. And, Will, welcome to the program. You know, I'll start with this. Um, I know you've been covering baseball for a while. This is actually quite an interesting time to cover the Mets, even though they're a second division club fighting it out for the, you know, the sixth worst record. Uh, there's so much going on. It's not your typical second division club. So welcome to the program. And how are you? Doing well, Mike. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I completely agree, man. Like it's uh, it's something different every single day. Obviously, that's nothing uh, too different from what Mets fans are accustomed to over the years. But uh, it really hits you when you're covering this team day in day out. Just the amount of news or the amount of interesting things that just occur on a daily basis. Will Salmon of The Athletic joining us. Uh, so you're familiar with David Stearns. I know you've been out there talking about it. You know, he's not official, but he will be in about a week. Uh, obviously, it was the the no-brainer move. It was probably the worst-kept secret in baseball. But he's not Theo Epstein or even Billy Bean in his heyday coming here. There is a bunch of questions. He's coming into a huge challenge. He has a ton of promise. But, you know, this task, despite the fact he's got the wealthiest owner now in sports, doesn't come without a drawback. So I was curious, uh, you know, the Stearns era begins shortly. This is quite an undertaking that he's uh, jumped himself into. Yeah, it definitely is. It's definitely a pressure cooker as well because there was no real number two person or number two option that we know of as far as Steve Cohen's uh wants and desires for a baseball president of baseball operations, even going back to say like when Billy Epler was hired or GMs before him, there wasn't a whole lot of candidates out there that had that pedigree or that resume that jumped out to you that said, okay, this is the guy for a president of baseball operations position, not just the GM spot. Uh, David Stearns, of course, jumps out as that type of candidate, as that type of person. But yeah, there's, there's some question marks there um, to you know, right off the bat, just like I mentioned, being in that pressure situation of like, okay, I don't really remember uh, if there's any executive ever in baseball that comes with this sort of cachet or this kind of attraction or interest. Uh, we don't usually talk about executives this way. We don't usually target them in this manner. The guys you mentioned are in a totally different tier, historically speaking, is, of course, Theo Epstein, Billy Bean, those types. But David Stearns has become sort of like a household name in baseball families, at least. And that's saying a lot for somebody who was an architect of a small market team like the Milwaukee Brewers. You don't really hear that too often. So I do agree that he's coming into a situation where there may be some question marks as to how much could he sort of uh, relate or institute what he was doing at a high level with the Brewers, with a team with far superior expectations or um just desires going in in terms of like what the fan base expects year in, year out. Whereas with the Brewers, he was coming from a situation where 
I don't want to say they were happy to make the playoffs, but like they were just happy to make the playoffs when that first started to happen. Now the expectations there have gone up. Um, but at first, you know, it was, hey, make the playoffs a couple of times and you're in the conversation as one of the best executives in franchise history. Here, like, you're, it is an undertaking. It's going to take some time probably as far as continuity goes. And a lot of it will depend on who he surrounds himself with. Will Salmon of The Athletic joining me. And, and he's being shoehorned in a way into an organization. I mean, it's been made clear by Steve Cohen that Billy Epler was, uh, you know, at least assisted in making sure that whomever they hired was going to work well with him. They've started to build some of the infrastructure in the organization. Look, I've said it a lot. Cohen took over in November of 2020. Uh, the season, the off season, was in the middle of a pandemic, of course, but the off season was already underway. They've had to kind of retrofit you know, with Sandy Alderson and the GMs that came and went and the manager that came and went. So he's coming in with some pieces, not all his own, not even his own manager. Uh, it'd be interesting. I mean, this is a little different and strange. No one's talking about it. It's not your typical management hire the way you want it to go. You want to come in, clear the deck usually, and build it yourself. And that's not exactly what Stearns is coming into 100%. Uh, yeah, sometimes. I think with, with Stearns too, though, um, it, it's kind of similar to a little bit of what he inherited with the Brewers because he never, he didn't hire Craig Council. He inherited him. Um, he also inherited a bunch of minor league managers as well. And um, sure, he hired some people in his front office and the front office there grew uh, a ton, so much so that they had to, I think, build another office at American Family Field just for the analytics group there. Um, so it definitely grew, but he also inherited a couple of key people within that front office that were sort of holdovers or that were even like, guys who were sort of fast rising or, you know, growing rapidly within the industry. Uh, one name and I, one name in particular that I think about is Matt Klein, who um, is a big part of their front office and was part of their brain trust. But that was somebody that was already in the organization. And he, he kind of graduated into like a, you know, a, a top five person as far as the hierarchy goes there. Um, same kind of with Matt Arnold as well. Like Matt Arnold, who is the GM of the Brewers right now, um, he didn't really have much of a history with David Stearns prior to both of them coming to the Brewers. Um, so I, I think sometimes like a lot can be made of, okay, this guy's coming in and he's going to uh, bring in a whole new group of people or a lot of people that he trusts. And, and that's true to some extent. And in some key positions that will happen. Um, but also like he has to learn or he has to demonstrate this ability that he learned with Milwaukee. And that's the ability to, to work well with other people and to trust other people and to give them a chance and then make your decisions as far as who could keep, who you should keep, um, who you should hold on to and where you could kind of make a difference or make a change. Being that you covered him a little bit in Milwaukee, one of the things that's been talked about, especially in this town, across town with the Yankees and their reliance on analytics, you just brought up Stearns and how he built up the analytics department. We know Billy Epler and Steve Cohen have been trying to do that, but there's been a portion of the sport that's starting to question, Hey, are these executives, you know, always about the analytics. Does the analytics team always win the tie when you make decisions? And, you know, Stearns on the surface would fit as someone who would probably lend itself more to analytics. How balanced is he, Will, from what you've experienced with him? Uh, you've heard some good things from the players that are out there about their interactions. Those have, have been uh, part of the Brewers organization. Uh, is Stearns a more balanced executive than maybe some are, are thinking on the way in? 
Yeah, I think a lot of executives are that way. Like, they're a lot more balanced than I think what people will label them as just because there's such a staunch difference between uh, how baseball was maybe 20 years ago versus the way it's run now. But, I mean, we see the successful teams year in, year out. A lot of them have um, huge portions of their front office dedicated to numbers, dedicated to data. And so we'll see a lot of that with the Mets, with uh, David Stearns, and certainly we've already have seen that with the way Steve Cohen has worked and operated and the different positions that he's hired for. That's definitely already occurred here. Um, here will advance a bit, but yeah, to your point about balance, sure, I, I think there's some aspect of him that looks at the soft skills. A lot of people in baseball refer to, say, like character, um, how they interact in the clubhouse as uh, leadership intangibles, things you necessarily cannot measure as like soft skills. And like sometimes like the brewers would make moves and it would look like they're kind of cold and calculated. And to a, to a certain extent they would be, but there's also like that element of, okay, we're bringing this guy in as a trend, uh, as part of a transaction. How will he fit uh, now that not, not necessarily will, make or break the deal, um, and it didn't with the Brewers, but it would certainly help uh, their calculus or help their decision-making process a little bit. And they, they still did that, even after Stearns. But with Stearns in particular, um, that occurred with the Willie Adamas trade, where they knew firsthand they were bringing in somebody who had leadership qualities. And so that may have helped move the needle in that direction a little bit, too, um, when it came to that. So, yeah, I think it's a combination of just weighing a whole bunch of factors. But just like any other modern front office, they're definitely going to be guided by the numbers to a, to a large extent. And, you know, one of the first decisions, assuming that he's been involved in it, falls right into that category. And, and everyone's talked about the Josh Hader deal, which in hindsight, you know, even though it may have made sense from an economic standpoint and, you know, service time, you know, may have ripped the heart and soul of that Brewers team last year out of that clubhouse. And now you have Pete Alonso And look... In a vacuum, it makes every bit of sense for the Mets to do what it was reported they've done, go out there, seek offers, see what they could get for a player that's entering free agency, wants potentially a 10-year deal, wants 25 to $30 million a year, power hitter, uh, to a certain degree late in his career, be- could become very one-dimensional. I mean, look at power hitters that went off the cliff, guys like Richie Sexton, you know, guys like that. So it makes sense, but emotionally, look, couple of, you know, bad season, two of the first three seasons of uh, Cohen's ownership, not good. This year, a major disappointment. You've written about that. Season tickets and prices are going up. We knew that was going to happen. And trading Alonzo, although it might make sense inside baseball-wise, uh, that would be a, a, a very hard introduction to the New York scene. Now, maybe Cohen takes the hit, but he's the boss now, Stern, so he'd be the first one. Not, not envious of this uh, decision that he has to make right off the bat. Yeah, a lot of these decisions, of course, like anywhere else, would start with, like, what does ownership want to do? And then it falls down to, okay, like, let's make the base, the best baseball evaluations from there. Um, and that will probably occur with the Mets as well, like it has, a, like it did at the trade deadline, for instance. Um, as far as Alonzo goes, I don't know if he's necessarily seeking uh, 10 years. I know that that's been reported out there, but um, that's not something that I could uh, confirm, but... We'll see what happens with, with like what how many years he, he gets, um, whether it's from the Mets or another team, but he's definitely proven his worth. And I think also I just have a hard time looking at a potential trade that involves Pete Alonso and you're seeing how the team gets better in the present. Now, certainly it may get better in the future, but I just don't know how it gets better like in 2024 without 
Pete Alonso on your roster, particularly with the Mets, because they don't really have like that huge or obvious solution at first base. Um, if they were to deal with Pete Alonso, like back in the day, there was, uh, I believe, with like the Phillies, um, you know, they they had Ryan Howard on their team, so that that allowed them to make some moves to to, to give him the runway and, and that kind of thing. So. Um, it's not. It, I just don't really see it as something that helps them in, in the current situation whatsoever. It would definitely be a nod toward okay, we're we're still trying to build toward 2025, 2026, etc. Um, yeah, it would be hard. Um, and the consistency is just incredible. Uh, it's just incredibly difficult to replace. To I know that he's having a a down season um, by some measures. And he had some uh, hard times when it sort of mattered most for the Mets. But you know, he still wants base to do things that only a select few people in baseball are doing. And that's approached like 50 home runs. And you can almost pencil him, well, you can pencil him in for at least 40 almost every season. And you're just not getting that from a lot of guys. Absolutely. Will Salmon of The Athletic joining me here. You wrote a great piece uh, with Tim Britton kind of uh, post-mortem. Uh, on the Mets uh, of 2023. And, and look, I mean, everybody, and I know that, you know, Scherzer was quoted in the article, Tommy Pham. Uh, I look at it this way, you know, it's pretty simple. When you start to look from day one, the starting pitching was historically bad at the beginning. The bullpen was short with Diaz out. The offense had some underperformance and injuries that those other two things couldn't be there, couldn't be uh, a present in order to stay afloat until they figured it out. And uh, they made a decision at the deadline to, you know, basically punt for the future. You could argue that we're not even having this conversation if they don't make those deals because look at the records of those who are behind the Phillies in the wild card race. You know, it's crazy, Will. Uh, bad season, but it's but three, four, five weeks ago, if they don't make those deals, who knows? Maybe they're hovering around 500 a couple of games over. Maybe we're talking about sneaking into a, uh, you know, a wild card tournament. It's it's not as clear cut. It is an interesting uh conversation but this has been a weird team in a weird season yeah maybe um i think sometimes like that's just hard to say because um there was a lot of pressure around this team and the pressure once the pressure got removed um they started to play a little bit better and we saw some of their integral pieces uh perform at a higher level or a level that they're more accustomed to so I'm, I don't know if that pressure remains if, if the production um, increases uh, the way it has for, 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 some, for certain guys. I'm not sure. Um, I think it's kind of too easy to kind of make that correlation. And also, like, the guys that they traded, uh, you know, Max Scherzer's out now for the rest of the – he's been out for a while and he won't pitch in September. Um, he's been, and he was sort of uneven with the Rangers anyway um, from a health perspective, certainly. Uh, Verlander's been pretty solid, I think, for the Astros. Um, not the ace, not, not the Cy Young Award winner that he was a year ago. Uh, David Robertson has not pitched well for the Marlins. Um, so uh, there, there could have been some regression for some of these guys as well. So I think it's a little bit easy to kind of say, like, okay, well, they would have been in the race if they hadn't. Um, maybe. Uh, maybe. But we don't know for sure. Um, as far as, like, this year goes, uh, and, like, that particular article, uh, yeah, I think like you outlined it really well with the idea that like, hey, like their, their pitching just failed them early on. Uh, it's certainly true, and some of their hitters uh, just regressed or just weren't able to produce at a high level that they're used to um, early in the season in the first half of the season. Uh, from our perspective, like 
we kind of knew that as everybody else sort of looking at this team kind of did. But our job is that particular story was to mainly just do some clubhouse reporting and do some scene setting as to like what it was like for these guys to experience this because um, the amount of money that was invested, I know people are sick and tired of hearing about it, but it was unprecedented and it's historical. And I think years from now when people see that figure, there will be a, a question of, okay, well, what happens? And it's not, like, embarrassing on the level of, like, say, like, the Padres or, or, or something like that because they, they did make the smart move, I think, in pivoting um, at the trade deadline, and um, they aligned themselves up for the, the future in a better way. Uh, but it still is a failure, and it's still something that people will point to years from now and just wonder to themselves, you know, what the world happens. Buck Showalter is one of the names that, you know, maybe even before Alonzo that has to be addressed. He does have a, another year left on his contract. I think he's done a nice job here, obviously, uh, this year. Uh, some questions, bullpen management. You know, look, when you have a short bullpen, easy to look bad with bullpen management. Maybe not playing the kids as much as the fans would like. Uh, and then there was the quote from Tommy Pham, which has been kind of mulled over a lot, you know, regarding the work ethic of the team. And, and maybe he, you know, was put a little out of context. Um, certainly something like that, it's an indictment on the manager. Would you care to talk a little bit about your thoughts on the somewhat of a firestorm on that quote and maybe the future of Buck uh, in this whole disappointment? Yeah, I know from talking with Tommy Pham a lot that he had a lot of respect for Buck Showalter and he called him one of his favorite managers to play for. Learned a lot from him as well, respected him. Um, he was one of the veterans who told me at midseason and another large story I wrote that Buck Showalter is far from the problem. Um, so I think like a lot of that uh, quote could be attributed just to like guys, you know, these are major league players, accomplished veterans in some regards um, without guessing as to who he was specifically talking about or speculating on that. Like it comes down a lot of times to like, you got to do your work or, or you don't um, in Tommy Famous view. And it, I don't know if, well, I know for sure that he didn't mean it as something that was, uh, could be attributed to the Buck Showalter or any manager for that matter. Um, I can understand like how people would take that and interpret it that way, though. Um, but yeah, I, I think Showalter has a lot of respect from like his veteran players. He treats them really well. Um, he does right by them publicly. You'll never hear him um, say anything negative about one of his guys, and I think people appreciate that, particularly in this market. Um, and, and yeah, I, I think that, that quote, um, we gave players an opportunity to say, like, no, this is definitely completely wrong. And within that story, like, you'll see that, you know, guys didn't necessarily, like, say, like, he's way out of line or anything like that by saying it. I think people were more um, within the club. I was looking at it as, okay, like, how can we learn from this? I think it's actually a good thing. Um, and it's something that kind of, like, it's a good thing for them to look at that. It's refreshing look to say to themselves, okay, what can we learn from this if it's true? Uh, what could we look at our processes to see what we can change? And some of that, like I said, I think a lot of it falls on the players, not necessarily the manager. There is so many questions, as I said, around this team, and, and there's some promising, uh, obviously, young players, young pitchers who have performed well the last few weeks. But nobody really seems to, you know, and I don't think anything will change over the next week, to have locked themselves into a position next year. Maybe Alvarez but if you start, let's look at just the position players real quick. And I'll throw DJ Stewart in there because he's, you know, been great in the second half in extended garbage time. Alvarez, Beatty, Mauricio, Vientos. Mauricio is such a small sample size. Uh, you have to think if they're going to spend on pitching, which is 
what they need to spend on. They may not spend the same level on offense, and the, these kids are going to have to be, at least on the, from the start, a solution early next year. Other, other than Alvarez, does anybody stand out to you that you really like and say, hey, you know, I could see this guy being a big part of the 2024 Mets positional group? Not right now. They haven't really proven themselves in that capacity. You could chart it out and look at their minor league track record and, you know, the buzzword of potential and say to yourself, yeah, you know, this, this could kind of make sense. And we, we've seen that before, right, of course, like with, like, rookies who struggle and then their next year they, they get a little bit better and they gain a little bit more of a, a hold on a job, that kind of thing. But so far, like, we haven't really seen anybody, aside from Alvarez, like you said, really grab that spot and run with it, of course, or make their case for 2024. problem with the Mets is that at third base, they really needed somebody to do that, and nobody really did. Uh, Brett Beatty was given the job, didn't run with it. Mark Vientos has had um, kind of a, not enough of a sample size, I think, from a continuity standpoint or consistency factor to really make a great judgment off of him. Um, but up until very recently, he hadn't really produced. And then Mauricio, the one thing that we could probably say about him is that his future is somewhere in the infield. Like they tried him in left field a little bit in, at AAA, didn't really take to it, and they, we haven't seen him there at all in the majors, of course. So we can at least say that he's probably part of the infield future and not necessarily like a utility guy or a left fielder type. Um, so, But that doesn't really give us a whole lot of clues. And unfortunately for the Mets, at third base, I think there's Matt Chapman out there in free agency. But aside from him, and even him, he's, his second half was terrible. Um, so he's definitely an inconsistent player offensively, although he's extremely gifted defensively. I don't know if they're going to want to commit to that kind of contract, the one that you'll probably command. Um, so there's not a whole lot there uh, for free agency. So I, I think a lot of signs point to, like, they, they need to have an answer internally here at third base. Um, unless they can look at the trade market perhaps um, and see what's out there. Um, but And they also have that issue in the corner outfield as well and, and not knowing exactly what to anticipate from, from Starling Marte next year. So when you mentioned DJ Stewart, you know, my mind looks at him as a possible bench piece, uh, particularly from the left side, but they still have to figure out what their starting outfield is going to look like uh, beyond Brandon Nemo in center field. And then you look at some of the auditions for the back end of the rotation, Buto, McGill, Peterson, Lucchese. McGill and Peterson, who helped the Mets tremendously in 2022, were probably one of the bigger reasons why they slumped into June this year. Not the only reason, but they couldn't make, pick up the slack when uh, Scherzer and, uh, and Verlander were out, unlike last year when uh, you know they were able to do that for the two big aces. Uh, being that they've all pitched very well down the stretch, has one stood out to you and said, hey, I like him as a dark horse for the fifth spot, you know, going into the spring. I don't think you want to commit more than maybe a competition from these guys. I don't think you want to go in to next year with these guys in your four or five. You know, you definitely want these guys as depth. But, you know, they've all provided some interesting things to chew on, especially for a team that needs pitching, can go out and buy some, but you can't buy four or five starters. You need something internally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you could buy maybe a, a couple, um, certainly one or two. Um, as far as the internal guys, I think my guess would be that Peterson probably has the best shot to occupy a rotation spot. Um, you know, McGill's had some inconsistency with his fastball, so perhaps he's, he's more of a bullpen option in the in the long term future. Um, and, and that that 
thinking may have changed too. Like, you know, when we look back at the beginning of the season, like you mentioned, a lot of people like McGill uh, in the organization as somebody who could be a long-term guy as a back-end rotation piece um, and maybe have Peterson go into a bullpen role. But, like, now it's – I think Peterson has shown a little bit more ability as a starter. Um, you know, Budo has a chance, I think, of figuring some things out like he's demonstrated. Uh, but I see him and, and some other people around the game see him more of like a – a bullpen type similar to like a Seth Lugo, uh, that kind of guy with the Mets careers, somebody who could make some starts, make some appearances out of the bullpen and has a sort of a hybrid role. Um, and then I guess like Joey Lucchese is the only other guy um, as well who's part of that group. I think he, again, looks at like next year as like a uh, guy who gets uh, occasionally called up, um, can make some spot starts here and there, that kind of thing again. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that they probably need, one of those guys to take a spot um, if they don't want to take on the spending that they did last year, of course. Um, and, and maybe Peterson's that guy. Um, but other than that, they're going to have to look at free agency, people like Yamamoto and some others um, who who look like or who could be potentially good fits for this team. Will, is uh, Kodai Singh, in your opinion, the, the biggest surprise, most positive outcome from this year? And can you look at him as a number two or an ace? I mean, he still needs an extra day of rest, I think, to get through the season. Uh, he surpassed my expectations. I thought maybe you'd get three, four starter uh, performance, but he has had periods where he's been among the best in baseball. What are your thoughts on Kodai Singa? Is he uh, the real deal that you could rely on him as a top of the rotation piece for the next three or four years? Yeah, I think if you look back, like uh, some of the stuff I wrote in November, December, um, even into the spring training, I, I've always liked him as an impact starter. The Mets wanted him as such. That's why they targeted him Targeted him in free agency. They thought that he could be um, in his best outcome, of course, but not only his best outcome, but like there was a, like a large percentile, maybe not large, maybe overstating a little bit, but there was certainly a sizable percentile, let's go with that, um, that indicated that he could be a, a, a top guy or a guy that you could count on or look at as a playoff starter. And that's what attracted them. They, they thought that that stuff kind of played and that it was good enough to be that type of caliber pitcher. And he's demonstrated that it is. He has shown, like, really no signs of, like, it being a mirage. Like, the guy has continued to get better. It's not like he's doing it with, like, smoke and mirrors where he's escaping uh, like he was in, you know, the beginning of the season where he get into these jams and escape them. And you say to yourself, well, okay, that's good. But like the walk rate is like super high and it's questionable. Well, that's not really the case anymore. Like he, he's really limited the walks, um, really particularly in the second half. And yeah, he demonstrated some signs to adjust, whether that's with the ball or the mound, uh, opposing hitters, um, travel, all those things. He's really adjusted to well, and I, I think what's kind of also gone under, under the radar is his ability to, to refine his pitch mix a little bit and to know and understand, like, what pitches play better at this level and what, where he could attack and have the most success uh, from the consistency factor when he falls behind in counts or when he needs to establish pitches early in a game. And those things, to me, have gone under the radar a little bit, but those are really the underlying reasons as to like why you would believe in this guy because he's really shown an ability to get better as the season's gone on and put himself really in a conversation for, you know, like some, some down ballot votes with like a Cy Young and certainly in the mix for, for rookie of the year. Fortunately for him, uh, Kobe Carroll with the Arizona Diamondbacks has been tremendous all year. 
and probably, and probably deserves it more, but definitely in the conversation for it. Last thing before I let you go. Um, we've talked a lot about the farm since the deadline deals of Orlander and Scherzer and uh, et cetera. But there's been some good things percolating down in the Mets system. B Mets are in the championship game. Um, get to see some of the, the you know potential stars of tomorrow. Should we be more excited about the Mets farm system than uh, we're talking about? I mean, look, everybody gets caught up in rankings, but you know there's some arms now. There's some positional players. Obviously, nothing's a guarantee. But I don't think this is a barren system, and you know this is going to be critically important if the Mets are going to contend even for a wild card of the next two years. They need some contributions from the system. So should we, as listeners, be more bullish, in your opinion, you're around the team, on this uh, Mets farm system, even uh, without some of those deadline acquisitions that have been talked about the last few weeks? It's better from a depth from a depth perspective, it's a lot better. And I think like in the 2022 trade deadline season, that's kind of, and that was an issue for them is that like, they had like these, they had a few prospects like, you know, baby Alvarez, um, Mauricio Vientos that they liked, but they didn't want to trade those guys. And there wasn't like another tier of guys that they were willing to trade from either because like they weren't really that good. And in, in the estimation of like rival front offices, so they were in a situation where, like, they had some guys that they liked and they were top guys, but the system was not deep enough to really trade from. And the guys who were in that second-tier group, like I said, just weren't very attractive. So now that's a lot better. And, like, so it, it, it's almost put a little bit where, like, they don't really have, like, uh, like that Alvarez type that's jumping out of the system, like, and everybody knows him, that kind of thing. Like Acuna, of course, um, generates those headlines to an extent. And Jeff Williams is carving out a name for himself as well. Um, but those are like more, I would say, like what back-end type 50 types right now. Mm-hmm. Maybe that changes. Um, but uh, and Alvarez was higher up there than that. So, But, yeah, I think that the depth will help. And I guess like when I look at depth, I also look at pitching. And they, they've got more interesting arms down there. And that will continue to improve because of the pitching lab where they could now put those guys there and – refine some things, uh, tighten up some aspects of somebody's repertoire and boost, boost, uh, their skill set, And so that will help. And it helps just from an organizational standpoint where, like I mentioned with trades, a lot of times, you know, teams are looking at, if they're going to make an offer, they're looking at, you know, somebody from, uh, you know, high a or double a who's, who's shown some tools and so like maybe the Mets don't have like a, an ace that's jumping out like a number one, or a 1A type pitcher in their system right now. Um, but they have a bunch of guys who are looking a lot more intriguing than, you know, last year or two years ago. And, and that helps. And with the um, addition of the pitching lab, um, that will certainly help their chances going forward because with the Mets, they had to revamp their whole bullpen last year. And part of that was because they didn't really have any internal solutions. Like Drew Smith was like their only guy who they could say to themselves, okay, he's definitely going to be, part of this mix and uh that was about it and if you look at other teams particularly the successful ones they have guys who pop every year and not just one but maybe like two or three guys who just pop uh from an internal standpoint as a reliever who has just all of a sudden emerged as a legit high leverage option the Mets haven't had that and so the more times they could build depth within their system that gives them a better chance for that panning out and that's a big deal, of course, um, when you're looking at successful teams and how to build them. 
So, Will, what are you going to be looking at the next few weeks covering the Mets? Obviously, last week of the season coming up, Stern's press conference. Uh, you believe Buck is going to be back. What are some of the stories you're uh, you're focused on over the next couple of weeks heading into Mets offseason? Obviously, I'm not sure if you're going to be covering any postseason baseball outside of the market. Yeah, like we talked about, I think Buck Showalter is the first big question for this team. And then secondly, it, it goes into Pete Alonzo dialogue and conversation and what that's looking like. Also, how David Stearns builds out his front office, like we talked about at the beginning of the conversation, there will certainly be guys who remain in the Mets front office who have been here, but he will no doubt bring people into key situate or key positions. Uh, we saw the Mets make moves uh, with their farm system leader, with their pro scouting leader, and so those are two key positions right there that jump out to me in addition to player development roles. So I'll keep an eye out for that as well while in the toward the end of the regular season, uh, just continuing to monitor what what we see from their young players because, like you suggested, the, the sample sizes for, like, a Juan Mauricio have not been large. But, you know, the more games he plays, the more data points we have to look at. And so that will help. And, yeah, just looking at also, like, the pitching and, and who could sort of emerge, like we discussed, as, as potentially a, a, a part of the solution going forward as the Mets construct their roster for – 2024 and beyond well we'll listen thanks for being generous of your time on a sunday let's do this again appreciate it be well and let's uh, keep in touch all righty yeah anytime mike thanks for having me and that's will salmon of the athletic you can check him out on x i keep saying twitter i should say x at will salmon all right let's take a quick break wrap up you're listening to the talking Mets podcast we're back at more right after this everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.